postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up a white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault, and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic how can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Pastor Marcus here, and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church podcast. We are going to dive right in today into episode four of Deconstructing the Adventist Worship Wars. I hope so far you've been blessed and challenged uh, by what you have heard already. But Max and I, we've got a ways to go. We've got a lot more content that we're going to be covering. So get ready for episode four, which is this one here right now. And make sure you keep tuning in each week for all the other episodes that will be uh, coming out in this series as well. Uh, Also, a huge thanks to everyone who's been commenting and sending messages, uh, emails. I've gotten some great feedback on this series so far from people all over the globe. And I really, really appreciate you guys. I'm glad that these conversations uh, are having a, a really positive impact in, in your spiritual life and in the way in which you relate to God and your culture. So I hope that they continue to be a blessing. So here we are uh, with part four of Deconstructing the Adventist Worship Wars. Come on, absolutely, and 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 let's let's expand on that a little bit, and and obviously we will we'll get in, we'll explore this a little bit more as as we continue to go as well. But the Hebraic view is that the physical reality is good. I mean, obviously there's a fallenness that's part of the story, sure. but the physical reality is good. It's good yeah. to enjoy the taste of food. It's good to enjoy sex. You know, all things in their proper sphere, like these are intended to be good. They're, 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 they are um, nested with sacredness in, in, yeah. in, within themselves. And, and so this is why, for example, John would insist in his epistles, like, no, Jesus was a real physical being. We saw him. We touched him, right? Yeah. Um, a spear was thrust into his side. You know, water and yeah. blood came out. This guy was really human, and he yeah. was God. You know, yeah. Um, and so the Hebraic idea, as you mentioned, the earthy, the real earthy, sort of like the celebration of 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 physical reality, is a very mm-hmm. Hebraic way of looking at things. Whereas the um, rejection of physical reality as something dirty or filthy or less than is not a biblical idea. It's it's a Greek idea. So let me ask you a question: Would you say? that asceticism is an expression of that Greek idea. The And for those of you who don't understand the term asceticism, I, I'm thinking of a certain type of asceticism as well. I know it's difficult to always conflate yeah. these things to one thing, but I'm thinking of asceticism like what you see in a lot of... Um, um, you know, people who like, who will like not eat or they'll whip themselves or, you know, like anything to try and deny the desires of the flesh, um, yeah. as, as a way of overcoming sin, <laughs> which right. I would imagine doesn't work anyways. Yeah. Is, is that an expression of this Gnostic idea? I think it can be, it can be, I think that there is, um, 
lately I have been absolutely fascinated with Eastern Orthodoxy. I've been doing a lot of reading, watching a lot of videos, mm. just like trying to understand it more as like essentially the branch of Christianity that I have heretofore known the least about mm. in terms Likewise. of just like general knowledge. Right. And it's, it's been a fascinating journey for me. And so I, I think for many Christians around the world, uh, because these are such such a large tradition, right? For many Christians around the world, asceticism is the language that they will use for the entire spectrum of what can be considered like self-denial and taking up your cross. Mm-hmm. And I do think it's it's extremely important for us when we're having this conversation, especially people who lean more on the progressive side, <laughs> dare I consider it progressive to say it's okay to enjoy things but like, <laughs> like when we're arguing for this we are not saying that like careless and like just free for all indulgence and in everything is is the way of the cross because it's not right mm-hmm. and i believe self sacrifice is the way of christ i believe that like self denial is the way of christ and that mm. we should be living in ways that sometimes inconvenience us and maybe are uncomfortable for us that's for right. the sake yeah. of the other, for the sake of our neighbor, right? And mm. I think that's actually one of the most difficult challenges of sanctification is to really be willing to make that kind of sacrifice, right? It's mm. one thing for me to yeah. even say it, but I feel hypocritical just saying it because I know I don't do everything that I could to, mm. to help my neighbor, which will be interesting for me to say right before we get into the utilitarianism thing. But um, <laughs> now that I think about it, the, but it's all about balance, right? So to answer, mm. to directly talk about your asceticism thing, I think that asceticism, when it is self-denial and following the lamb wherever he goes and where it's saying like, maybe I'm going to be hungry for a few days because I'm doing what Jesus told me to do. I'm doing what Jesus exemplified and this is what's going to help. Mm-hmm. then I think that that's a beautiful thing. Or, or sure. if it's genuinely, yeah. if, if it's someone saying like, I need to get my urges and, and my impulses under control. So I'm going to engage in some disciplines to train myself. Mm-hmm. I think that's a beautiful yeah. thing. I would never knock that. Um, but I do have a scripture open that I would love to read that I think kind of directly plays into what you've said and just beautifully encapsulates the 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 different dimensions of this. And it's mm. in Colossians chapter two. And honestly, I've I've read this to people or even sent it to people and had them respond like, that's in the Bible? <laughs> so here we go. Colossians chapter two, verse 20 to 23, if my eyes are not deceiving me. Here we go. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Mm. What? Wow. Like that, it, that's incredible that that is a paragraph in in in, in an <laughs> epistle somewhere. Like, yeah, yeah, I don't think anything could exemplify what I'm talking about more perfectly than what Paul says there, mm. right? What, why, if you are no longer part of the world, then why are you submitting to these worldly regulations? Do not handle, do not touch, 
do not taste, right? Mm. Self-made religion, religion of self, works righteousness. Mm. Works righteousness that admittedly comes from a different motivating source than Torah, right? This, right. Is, this is quite a far cry from that, but it's still that, right? It, it, it is still essentially salvation by my efforts to do things, or in mm. this case, my efforts to not do certain things, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah. interesting that Paul specifically says it had. It seems it has an appearance of wisdom, but it actually is not valuable in terms of stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Mm. And to me, yeah. I've witnessed so many young Adventists be like, "I'm not watching any movies, and I'm not listening to any music that's popular right now, and I'm not blah 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 blah. I'm not doing all of these things, and then I still sin. Oh, mm. uh, what a wretched sinner I must be!" I'm like, "Hey, look, Cain and Abel." They went from eating the wrong fruit to murder in cold blood in one generation. And guess what? No movies, no rap, no heavy metal, no video games, no comic books, no Harry Potter novels, none of these things that we blame. Mm -hmm. Right? There's a verse in James. I'm getting heated now, but like this is I love it, bro. This is this is what happens when I mean Adventists, let's be real, we have a very particular view of the sinful nature, and that's been a contentious point for us. But like we do this thing where we think it's like, oh, watch out. You're a sponge. Watch out for the external influences. The devil could go to sleep right now. He could mm -hmm. have a sleepover party with every single one of his demons and say, bro, I am tired of these humans. I'm tired of these angels. I'm tired of God. I'm tired of fighting him. I am taking a nap. And we would go on sinning just fine without him. The book of Absolutely. James, I don't know the verse in chapter, but the book of James says, we sin when we are led away by our own desires it comes from inside of us mm. we don't need help we absolutely mm -hmm. do not need help the devil certainly tries he likes mm -hmm. to egg us on but we don't need him to sin that's right so when i look at the way we go on these like censorship tirades and saying like if you just avoid the right things and if you don't put pepper on your food and you don't listen to anything with a beat and and so on and so forth then you'll have a better control of yourself and you won't say swear words anymore and and you won't lust after anyone ever again and i'm like this has an appearance of wisdom but it has no value mm, in actually absolutely. stopping the indulgence of the flesh that is absolutely. my rant Amen. Oh, I'm I love it, break. bro. You know, it's oh. interesting because um, I'll let you have a break now. I'll share a few things. Um, <laughs> there, there was a season, like I said, in my life, I was really like into last generation theology and all this stuff. And mm -hmm. um, there was a season in my life where I embraced all of these, um, you know, hyperbolic yeah. approach to spirituality and sanctification, the navel gazing. And, uh, and man, I was all in. And look, you know, for anyone who's, um, you know, tempted to think that maybe I was in halfway, uh, I was, I was all in, man. And I, I'm, I'm a former army sergeant. Like I, I understand mm. discipline, you know, I, yeah. I understand, you know, how to put yourself or make a commitment to something and, and be all in. And, um, yeah, so I, I was all in and I gotta be honest with you when I began to peel away and, 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 and God had to slowly deconstruct these ideas in me because I was way too committed. <laughs> I was way too hardcore. Um, and so God had to slowly deconstruct these ideas in me. And I still remember one of the very first things that God began to deconstruct in me was there were two experiences that I had that were kind of like revealed the chinks in the armor, so to speak. 
uh, right. that began that journey. The first one was that I was, I was, I, I was meeting people from other denominations who didn't eat like I ate, who didn't listen to the music that I listened to, uh, who didn't dress like I dressed. And, you know, their, their diets were unholy according to my standards. Their music was worldly according to my standards. Their dress was, you know, um, worldly as well according to my standards. And wow, did they ooze Jesus. Right. And I was just like, and I remembered thinking like, but the people that I'm surrounded by who are like me, who have my holy diet and my holy dress and listen to the holy music, this a term that I absolutely despise, sacred music. Uh, I absolutely despise that term now. Because <laughs> um, I know what we usually mean by that is like a music written by white people in the 1900s um, or before. <laughs> um, and And so, you know, like, when I thought, when I looked back to those people that I was surrounded by, those communities that I was surrounded by, um, there was a lot of criticism. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of repressed emotion, tension. Um, and and then I got around these Christians from other denominations who had this beautiful simplicity to their faith they weren't concerned with all these extra rules they were just so in love with jesus and everything like you could see the love of god in their eyeballs like it yeah. was odd right and yeah. and i it's not like i was actively looking for this stuff because i was actively looking for reasons to criticize them you know and right. i could see it i was like they ooze jesus that was number one and number two was their joy and and I remember being around and seeing this joy, this contagious joy, this lightheartedness, this freedom. And and I remember thinking to myself, why am I not happy like that? Mm. Why am I always angry? Why am I always tense? Why am I always on the on defense? Um, and and I realized like I don't know what it's like to rest in Jesus because I had way too many rules that I was supposed to be keeping. And, you know, those things can get really fanatical, but even if they don't get fanatical, uh, even if you keep them at a certain level of, you know, reasonableness, if that's a thing, it's still like this giant list of rules you're trying to keep. And, and that, those, those two moments were like seeing Jesus ooze through these people in a way that I didn't see among in myself or the people who agreed with me and, and just the joy that they had that I didn't have. I was like, nah, something's wrong. And uh, it's a separate conversation for a separate time. There was actually a, a, a time in that journey where I honestly said to my wife, and like I said, separate conversation for a separate time, so I won't go into much detail, but I said to my wife, I said, man, uh, like, are we in the wrong denomination? <laughs> because I just don't get it. Like, I was still going through this journey and um, I was still searching and praying and searching scripture and, and, you know, trying to make sense of things. And I had just left. I was studying at Southern Adventist University. Loved it, by the way. It's like four wonderful years there. I actually miss it. Really cool peoples. Um, but I was studying at Southern Adventist University and the group of like theology majors that I was hanging out with at the time were really, really like, like me, you know, like really strict and some of them even stricter um, and really conservative. Um, and when I left Southern, it was during the Christmas holidays and this group were like having this giant debate over whether you should celebrate Christmas or not. And I, and I drove to Georgia and there wasn't an Adventist church we were at. So we went to this non-denominational church that had Sabbath gatherings. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I remember looking around and seeing the simplicity, the faith, the joy, the the presence of Jesus so clearly there. And I was like, I said to Candice, that's that's my wife, said to her, like, are we in the wrong church? Like, we just left a group of people arguing about whether you should celebrate Christmas. And like that, that's their faith. And like, we come here to these people and it's like, wow, like you could just see Jesus everywhere. Like, it's incredible. And it like, it was a really, really difficult season for me. Like, obviously I'm still an Adventist and I love being an Adventist and I would never leave this church, but um, there was definitely, it was, it was definitely an eye-opening experience where I began to deconstruct the hyper asceticism, if I could use that term, as opposed to asceticism, which does have um, positive values to it, but the hyper asceticism that I had become enmeshed in through things like last generation theology and and a lot of these assumptions that we're discussing now. Um, yeah. All right, I've given you a break, so I'm going to flip back over to you. I'm, Talk I'm to back. us about utilitarianism. We got we're going to we're going to wrap this particular topic up, but uh, yeah. yeah, talk to us about utilitarianism. We've been and on I think, this one um, for a long time. We, we, oh, this is worth it, man. This is worth it. This is like a Joe Rogan podcast, bro. It's like three hours <laughs> for one episode. <laughs> right. Right, right. All right. Utilitarianism. Walk us through that. Yeah. Okay. So utilitarianism, for those who are not um, familiar with it, obviously part of like the modern philosophical tradition. Uh, the big names here would be Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. Um, so if you want to look into it a little bit more, those are kind of like the big names for utilitarianism. Um, at least in like, you know, it's like foundational stages. Um, utilitarianism is a ethical system. So it's within the ethics subdiscipline of philosophy. And it wants to define like what, you know, what constitutes the right thing to do? What constitutes good action? What constitutes moral action? So some of the principles that undergird utilitarianism, I mean, the goal of utilitarianism is to define goodness, to define rightness by what causes the greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of people or like the, the maximal state of affairs, right? I'm maybe borrowing maximal state of affairs from Plantinga and it's totally foreign to utilitarianism, but this is what happens when you've been slacking on philosophy. So anyways... That's, a, my, that's my confession right there. I've been slacking on philosophy, uh, blending everything together in my mind. But the idea is that's the okay, greatest man. amount it of happens, good. Once you read a few guys and you read some more, it just all starts to it all mesh together. It becomes yeah. a giant smoothie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the greatest amount of good for the greatest number of people, right? That's what defines what is good. And so utilitarianism is what you would call a teleological system of ethics, a teleological system of ethics means it's goal-based ethics, right? What defines what is good is the end you are seeking, what you are trying to achieve, versus what you would call deontological ethics. So ethics based on duties, or maybe something that's more like imposed upon you. So for example, divine command theory, God issues a command, and because he has stated it, and his command is what defines right and wrong, you then have a deontological duty you have you have a well yeah there it is a duty right to fulfill something or um you know i guess the other guy who's like not the other guy but one of the other well-known deontological systems would be kantianism right act in whatever you do act according to the maxim that you wish would be universal law kind of a exaggerated golden rule of sorts right but again like a, an obligation-based ethics teleological ethics based on goals. So terms have been yep. defined, right? Um, with utilitarianism, um, 
I mean, it's one of those systems where it's appealing to people because like, you know, for example, my mom's a nurse, right? And so triage, prioritizing who do you treat first? Oh man, mm-hmm. we got five ambulances just came in. Like, uh, what do we do first, right? Triage tends to benefit from a utilitarian focus, right? Because you're trying to say like, uh, what's the most good we can make out of this bad situation? So in many ways, it does seem intuitive. It does feel like in certain situations, using utilitarian logic might be beneficial. It might give you a sense of saying like, what good can I accomplish overall, right? So, you know, people get it. You, you see the appeal, right? It's like, obviously, I, I want to make the greatest number of people as happy as possible. It seems like a good goal, pretty much thumbs up. I keep doing hand gestures like people can see what I'm doing. Uh, anyways. Um, they cannot, so, but uh, just so, you know, if you guys want to imagine Max, you know, throwing his thumbs up in the air. Yeah. That's maybe it. it'll bring bring some th- some extra dimension to what he's saying. I'm giving every single person listening to this a thumbs up. Whether you agree with me or not, I just I <laughs> upvote your life and your existence. You're great. I like so, it. So um, one of the the ways that utilitarianism is, is criticized is that it ends up creating a number of problems for itself and in ways that like run contrary to what are some of our maybe most deeply held um, like ethical assumptions. Things that just feel wrong to us are right under utilitarianism's framework. So some examples. Within utilitarianism, because you have to prioritize, in order for an action to be right, it has to prioritize the greatest number of people possible, right? So what that eliminates is what you would call ethical special obligations, right? You cannot have a special obligation to someone. The the numerical weight has to take precedence, right? Um, So for example, you know, people come up with these thought experiments. It's like, such and such boat is sinking or there's a train coming and you have to save either four people or three people, whatever, right? Let's say you're in a situation where it's like, save a group of like 50 people in a bus that like went off a bridge into the water or save a car that has just your child in it for whatever reason. I mean, I'm sure I could come up with more elegant examples, but I think most people's moral intuitions would say saving 50 people is nice, But actually, as a parent, you have a very special obligation, like you are obligated to help your own child. You can't just be like, sorry, my son, I have to go save everyone else, right? It's like you have an obligation to your own child, right? Within a utilitarian framework, it's like, no, sorry, your child is one and the bus is full of 50. Like the the choice is made for you by the numbers, right? And so it's it's one of those like ah no special obligations mm, that could that could turn into something really uh sticky right yeah so it seems like utilitarianism then is downplaying uh, emotion like the emotional connection i mean it's deeper than the emotional connection obviously it's you know when you have a like your responsibility to your child but there seems to be an element of that where it's like you know your your special relationship to that child just doesn't count it's it's yeah. all about the greatest possible good and that's defined numerically yeah 
Okay. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. I don't know if emotion factors into it so much because on the one hand, the, the thing that utilitarianism describes as quote unquote utility, right? The, the, the goal, what you're trying to achieve is happiness. So in, in a way mm. it is emotion, but it, the, the, the utilitarian calculus, so to speak, like the, the calculation side is very important, right? like maximizing the greatest good for the greatest number. Yeah. So um, I'm, I, I'm just setting the stage for like the problems with utilitarianism because it, it pops up with the worship thing in very unexpected but, but striking ways. Mm. One of the other issues with utilitarianism, if my train of thought will kindly come back to me from wherever it <laughs> decided to go. Um, da 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 um, Oh, yes. Um, utilitarianism, it, the other thing that is often a criticism that's levied against it is that it's too demanding. So utilitarianism asks for too much. So, Marcos, if I were to ask you the question, um, is it morally evil for you to go on a picnic with your wife and children and have a nice meal out in the park and eat some delicious sandwiches? Is that moral evil? Of course not. Of course not. But in a utilitarian framework, you could have been volunteering at a soup kitchen. Mm -hmm. What are you doing right now? Are you maximizing the greatest amount of good that you could be doing in the world? Because, and this is the thing, in a utilitarian framework, like, because it's difficult to know actually, like, what is your limit of how much you can do? And like, how much good actually could you cause in the world? What would cause the greatest amount of happiness for everyone? At some point, you realize you kind of have to do everything, mm -hmm. right? There is no ceiling. There is no such thing as enough, right? Like how you, there's no, I mean, one of the criticisms is the utilitarian calculus is actually impossible because you don't know what will in fact maximize the greatest amount of happiness for the greatest mm. amount of people, right? Mm. So you end up in this mad rush to just do everything. And there is no such thing as enough. There is no such thing as satisfaction. And it essentially criminalizes relaxation. Yeah. Right? Which now, sounds, sounds an awful lot like perfectionist theology. Yes. It, 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 it tends to run in the direction of saying – of I mean, the same implications that a perfectionist mm -hmm. theology would have, right? Which is, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's less of a cause and effect relationship and more of like, look at these interesting parallels, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's these two things that oddly run beside each other in the grand scheme of things, right? So um, blah, 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 blah. I'm glad your listeners got to hear me do that. Uh, it's my thinking sound. Um, it's fantastic. Yes, I'm, I'm a man of many sounds. So with utilitarianism, you, you have all of these issues that come up. Uh, importantly, there is a difference between what you'd call act utilitarianism and rule utilitarianism. What I've been describing to you is act utilitarianism, which is concerned with individual actions and is, is more, it, it requires more calculating every single action moment by moment. Whereas mm. rule utilitarianism is, is, more, is slightly more nuanced and it's like act according to the rule that in general tends to maximize happiness for the most number of people, which, which, it, it, which is definitely more nuanced. 
So mm -hmm. like, I don't want to throw, you know, rule utilitarians under the bus, but I kind of do because what that system essentially does is kick the bucket a little down the road. And, and it, it, the, the question eventually has to be answered again. It's like, well, are you acting by the rule that maximizes yeah. the happiness for everyone? Because you might not be doing enough. You yeah, might be following yeah. the wrong rule, right? So it, at the end of the day, it just runs into the same problem just later. Mm -hmm. So now I have to tie this into worship, right? Okay, here we go. One of the things that is very prominent in Adventist circles when we discuss like worship and music is distraction rhetoric, right? you are being distracted from God right now. You are not using your time the best way you could be using it right now. Uh, you could have spent this time in prayer or reading the Bible, but instead you were X, Y, and Z, whatever thing you were doing that might've been entertaining. You were reading a novel. You were listening to music. You were doing a silly little dance with your friends on TikTok, right? It's like, but you could have been using that time for the kingdom of God, right? <laughs> it, 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 it runs very parallel to that, like nothing is ever enough type of mm -hmm. rhetoric, right? There is no such thing as being at rest. It is too demanding, right? Mm. Um, and, and it's something that I find very interesting, this idea that like within our, our viewpoint of things, it's like, okay, let me start that sentence over. One of the things that I have observed when I try to make a fuss about saying we need to rethink the way we think about music and art and beauty and worship and all of these things is an objection that pops up where people say, does that really matter? Shouldn't we be focused on mission? Shouldn't mm. we be focused on spreading the word? That's what this is really about. Arguing about worship styles is just petty and it doesn't matter, right? Mm. There, are, there are things that really matter that have more utility, right? Getting mm -hmm. people to heaven, right? And, and this is one of those areas where- And, like, and you, ah. see the same, you see the same exact- arguments being made for example in the word, women's ordination conversation where you'll right, have people exactly. like it doesn't matter just and just i would agree preach. i would agree that the topic for example of music i would agree that it's not that important it's not as important as like reaching someone for the kingdom of heaven if it weren't for the fact that the topic of music is a mere poster boy, <laughs> it's a mere manifestation of deeper issues that will right. consistently prevent us from reaching people for the kingdom. So it has yeah. to be discussed. Yeah. Difference in music taste is objectively superficial. Mm -hmm. Right. If someone comes to me and says, like, I don't care what you say, Max, I love country music. I'm like, <laughs> I have to say congratulations, good for you. I don't like country music and I cannot evaluate you differently as a human being because of it, because it is genuinely superficial. But mm -hmm. when you- So when, would this be an okay time for me to say that I like country music? Yeah, sure, go ahead. All right, cool. I, I like country music, Max. You're, you're smart enough for me to respect you regardless <laughs> of that fact. <laughs> I will say- I will say that I've come around in many ways with country, not that I mm. really ever listened to it, but I do respect the songwriting very often. It can be quite good mm. in certain mm. subgenres of country, maybe not the, the radio stuff, but, uh, <laughs> and I do greatly respect the guitar players. There are some mm. excellent guitarists in country music. I will grant that without reservation or qualification. Cool, there are cool. there are country guitar techniques that actually baffle me, and I have been playing mm -hmm. for a long time. The thing yeah. they call chicken picking licking, 
That is, I cannot do that. That is something. I'm going to have to YouTube that. I don't even know what that is. It sounds very Southern though. It, yeah, right. <laughs> Basically what they do is they hold the guitar pick between like thumb and index finger like you normally would. Uh, and they, they're picking with that, but then they're also using their middle finger as like a, an alternate picking thing. Oh, so like they okay. pick down with the pick and then like pluck up with the, the ring finger. And okay. it's it's typically done very fast. Um, mm. Obviously an electric guitar. To, I'm sure they could do it on acoustic, but it, electric chicken picking and licking. Huh. Yeah, just chicken picking. It It is. I've thought about trying to learn how to do it, but it is it's daunting to me it's <laughs> it sounds like a wheelhouse yeah. so yeah you know yeah. and i'm you know i'm not to toot my own horn but i am a good guitarist like people yeah. will tell you that about me anyways yeah. utilitarianism yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, i'd Back say to our regularly scheduled program yes um <laughs> like music taste is genuinely superficial but mm. when it escalates to you know what you said a manifestation of deeper worldview concerns where you're actually saying like certain cultures are bad, certain forms of self-expression are bad. Uh, the human body itself is bad. Well then no, we're dealing with actual worldview questions that mm. may actually undercut the gospel that we're trying to preach to people. That's right. Right. And so, um, you know, and speaking of mission, so here's the thing. Um, when I was doing mission work through uh, Tyndale university, um, the, the mission department there and this one guy in particular uh, by the name of Dave Roberts, absolutely phenomenal dude, just great guy. One of those people who oozes Jesus, you know, like mm, one of mm. those, right? Nice. He, in doing our like mission prep and mission training, um, one of our exercises that we would do is um, he presented us this quote from John Piper of all people. And I'm not here <sighs> to give like a whole wholesale endorsement of John Piper because like that... Uh, it's not my vibe per se, but yeah. this quote, I, I have never been able to escape the, the profundity of it. So, mm. and if anything, maybe this will be appealing to the, the more conservatively minded among, among the listeners, right? But John Piper has this quote and he says, mission exists because worship doesn't. And then the exercise was for us to unpack what the heck is that supposed to mean? Mission mm. exists because worship doesn't. There's two ways that ended up two ways of interpreting it that ended up being the most salient to me. One of them, which I don't think was the authorial intent was the idea that like mission as like an organized structural thing exists because true authentic worship isn't existing in churches around the world in their localized context. If we were true worshipers, we would just be lifting up Christ in a way that draws people to him. Right. Mm, and that a, mm. a life of true devotion and of like full surrender and worship would, in fact, be attractive. Mm. Certainly not the authorial intent. It, what he is saying is actually, I think, a little more uh, simplistic than that. It's like mission exists because there are people who do not worship Jesus Christ. Mm. We do mission because there are people who are not yet worshipers. But then yeah. he follows it up with a thought that I think is exceptionally profound. One day, when and I'm, I'm paraphrasing him here, but one day when all nations are gathered before the throne and this conflict on earth is done and and the old age has passed away and all new things have come and, and everything mission will be done away with entirely. There will be no more such thing as mission ever again, but worship will go on. 
Worship will always exist because worship mm. is what we were made for. Worship mm. is our existence. Worship mm. is not a superficial thing to be cast aside for the sake of mission or to take second place to mission. Mission doesn't exist without worship because one, worship fuels us with the power for mission. If we are not worshipers, then we have no mm. power to do mission. And and if we can't worship together, what exactly are we inviting people to? Mm. A fight? What's the mm-hmm. point of that? It's just more. <laughs> it's just more DVDs to be sold to angry, fearful people. But yeah. two, worship is what we're inviting people to forever. Mm. We're saying, come, become worshipers of this God who died for you, yeah. right? Yeah. And so yeah. this idea that we can somehow say, oh, don't don't solve our music and worship debates because shouldn't we just focus on mission? If we don't get worship right, then we don't have a mission. Mm. If we can't Absolutely. prioritize worship together, if we can't mm. find harmony and 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 unity on worship together, then what mission? Yeah, you know. That's right. And 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 to to me, it seems like a utilitarian excuse to not mm. unpack a difficult topic because it makes us uncomfortable and say, yeah. "Oh, but we're focused on mission. We're focused on mission. Mission will die. Mm-hmm. It, our goal is to make mission be over." <laughs> so that we yeah. can get back to our regularly scheduled program of loving God forever together. Mm. Right. Mm. And, and to me, that is like that to me, that's like already a nail in the coffin for like thinking utilitarianly about worship. Like, Absolutely. Uh, but to, to, I, I hope I'm not going too fast here, but like, I'll, I'll bring up another point in John. I'm pretty sure I, let me not, misquote the scriptures yeah john chapter 12 there is this scene where mary one of like a bajillion marys in the new testament mary um comes to jesus and pours out this ointment this perfume on his feet and it's expensive this action is gratuitous this action Mm. is objectively unnecessary it does not physically help anyone it is purely a gift and an act of beauty Mm. it is purely an aesthetic experience it smells good Mm. maybe it feels nice on the feet get the sand out i don't know right but she she pours out this offering on jesus that has no practical value very little practical value at least and Mr. of all misters, Judas Iscariot pipes up and says, well, the, you know, dude, the, the perfume could have been sold and you could have given the money to the poor mission. Come on, man. And Jesus rebukes him and says, she did something beautiful for me. Mm. Mm. You will have the poor and yes, help them. But she did something beautiful for Mm. me that's Mm. worship it doesn't have to be practical worship doesn't have to accomplish something Mm. worship doesn't have to be useful it's already valuable in and of itself right and that's the Mm. thing that judas misses entirely judas Uh, but like it, it here it is this is judas is the ultimate why are you doing why are you focusing mm-hmm. so much on worship when you could be doing something practical for mission right yeah he, he is that guy and you don't want to mm. be him you, he's the guy you don't want to <laughs> be if you didn't know absolutely yeah um 
Yeah, so, and, and look, yeah. I've, I've actually got a question in line with that. I mean, first of all, I'm just like blown away because, you know, I did my bachelor's in theology. I've been pastoring now for seven years, maybe eight. I had no idea Judas was a Californian. So that was, it was great to learn that, uh, you know, he, he's a surfer. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you, bro. That, that's, that's, I'm a man wow. of many sounds. <laughs> So here's here's my question um, with utilitarianism. Is this also what is at play in Adventist culture that emphasizes transactional information over emotional experience to the mm. point that we demonize emotional experience as something that only those ungodly Philistine Pentecostals do? And then elevate transactional information, academic transactional information as what, you know, like this is what godly people do. Now, I'm obviously I'm, I'm not against, uh, you know, academic, like I'm, I'm sure. a bit of an academic myself. I'm definitely a nerd. Um, but yeah, is there, I, I do see an imbalance there. Is, is, is utilitarianism at play in that tension or, or that imbalance? I had not considered that possibility before, but I think the fact that you're making that connection makes a lot of sense. I mean, given the conversation we're having right now, I, I think it does make a lot of sense. The idea mm -hmm. that like information is useful, mm -hmm. but it's, it's harder to quantify uh, feelings as useful. You know, it's hard to quantify yeah. beauty as being useful. I think it's good. Beauty is good. You'd be, you'd be hard. It's, it's hard to be like, oh, why is beauty useful? Mm -hmm. I mean, in order to do that, you have to ask more existential questions. Like, what, why is it nice to be alive? Like, why is it good to be alive? You know, what is mm -hmm. happiness? What is that yeah. thing that the utilitarians claim to be aiming for? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think that that is that might be actually be a very insightful application of the idea that it's like yeah. you you prioritize even in the manner in which you worship. I mean. The, the centerpiece of most Protestant worship is the sermon as an mm -hmm. intellectual exercise. And it's yeah. interesting because this makes me think of something else people will say. It's like, well, you're complaining about like the worship doesn't speak to you or you're not getting anything out of it, quote unquote. But like, isn't church really about going to worship God? And I'm like, cool, awesome. But like, I'm given like maybe a grand total of seven minutes of opportunity to actually worship God in any given church service. And mm. most of the rest of it is an info dump that God certainly doesn't need. Even mm. our prayer time is mostly me listening to someone else pray. And I get maybe like a solid 30 seconds of silence at the end of that mm. prayer to like say my own prayers to God. But like, yeah, yeah you know, if we're singing some like 500 year old hymn that I've never heard in like the last four years. Yeah, no, I'm not getting anything out of the service. Like the sermon <laughs> better hit real hard because like, yeah. I, I, I know God isn't going to learn anything from it, so mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I better learn something from it. So, But I find yeah. myself in a position where it's like, no, I'm not getting anything out of church, and I'm certainly not giving anything because our church services are designed to make most of us into passive spectators. Mm -hmm. There really is very little actual participatory elements in the yeah. average Protestant church service, Adventist mm. or otherwise. So, That's right. you know, to me, it's like, uh, I don't know. Like, mm. it, maybe this isn't a good use of my time. Maybe I can be a little bit of a utilitarian on this one. Like, oh, <laughs> you're actually wasting my time. Like, yeah, I'd rather go it, just yeah. pray, you know? Yeah, but yeah. this is this is the thing. Like, 
we should make our worship valuable for people. Mm. People yeah. should have a chance to pour out their heart before God. I think that's mm. one of the things that the Pentecostals do get right is they give people space. They give their, their services flexibility for people to say, like, I want to stay praying a little bit longer or mm -hmm. I want to share my testimony right now. I know there's another song coming up, but hold on. My testimony yeah. is really leaning hard on my heart right now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think there there is more usefulness to be gotten out yeah. of our services if we actually lean into the value of beauty. Mm -hmm. um, not to Absolutely. shout out someone else's podcast, but Kendra Arsenault did an episode of Advent Next with um, one of our professors at Andrews. And uh, on, on a theology of beauty, which I think is definitely mm. worth uh, checking out um, or moving towards a theology definitely. of beauty, because I think if awesome. we understand beauty as something inherently valuable, we can relearn to appreciate God as valuable mm. as creator. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so. Absolutely, man. I've got one more question before we wrap this topic up. We've gone for like two hours on this one topic. For, this, this is going to be two, a, two separate episodes. But this is a doozy. I'm uh, this video. <laughs> so, uh, but here's, um, I got one more question for you mm -hmm. and it's going to kind of circle back around to the science thing and then we'll wrap it up. Sure. But I did want to say one other thing before I asked the question. It's a really yeah. big frustration of mine. Some years ago, um, my wife was having a conversation with a very conservative Adventist lady who said to her, oh, I recently went to an African-American church, mm -hmm. uh, to a black church. And she complained about the worship. And her complaint was that she felt that in the black church, the music is a substitute for the Holy Spirit because it makes you feel excitement. And it, it substitutes the Holy Spirit, but it's not really the Holy Spirit. It's just emotion. And, and I said, you know, my wife was sharing this with me afterwards. And I said to her, and this is what I often say to people who, are, who have that line of reasoning, I say, I can make the same exact claim about hymns, that hymns create an emotional experience of reverence, but it's not real. It's just emotionally created by the somber music and, you know, the slowness. And it kind of creates this mood in the room that we're being reverent right now. And, but that's all the music. It's not a real experience. And, and most conservatives would probably push back on that and feel that that is a bit unfair. Um, to which I would say it's also deeply unfair when you suggest that the musical expression of a diverse people group is somehow phony or synthetic because it creates right. excitement. Like that's, I think this goes back in some ways, probably rubs shoulders with Gnosticism again, because it's this assumption that um, if it's terrestrial, and it somehow creates an emotional experience, it must be bad. And I'm like, you know what? God designed it that way. He designed for music to be moving, for music to make us feel reverence or feel excitement or feel joy or lamentation. That's the point. Like it's designed to create those emotions within us. And those emotions are in themselves something that is worth celebrating it's part of part of god's design yeah. and that leads me to my final question um which i will wrap this episode up in um swinging back around to the science thing there's one thing that i think touches on what i just said but that we also didn't address there seems to be an overwhelming 
focus when it comes to the traditional defense or apologetic of music, there seems to be this overwhelming focus on, I, w- I wish I had like a drum for a drum roll, um, the frontal lobe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what is going on? <sighs> yeah, the frontal lobe. All right, so it's part of the brain, that's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm, I pretty sure, like- I'm pretty sure I have one. Yeah, I, I have one. Uh, according to Christian Berdahl, mine died uh, many years ago. I mean, this is the thing. He'll use this hyperbolic language that I know he doesn't even mean literally. Like, it's not possible for him to mean it literally. But, like, he'll say things like, backbeat comes in, boom, frontal lobe gone. I was like, well, no, it's still there. You, What you mean is it's not functioning properly or whatever, right? So mm-hmm. the, the whole thing with the frontal lobe is they're saying, like, oh, the frontal lobe is the part of your brain that regulates, um, you know, moral decision-making, just active decision-making in general, right? Um, And so this idea that, like, if that goes into anything of a slight, you know, slightly more relaxed state, if it's not just hyper-vigilant 100% of the time, you will fall into error. It's it's just, it's that danger epistemology again, right? It's just living in a world of pure hostility, where again, science is a Trojan horse for magical thinking. Is like if the wrong kind of beat turns on, then it it bypasses your brain and demons can get in, mm. right? It's just like yeah. you, your brain just becomes a giant amygdala, and you are <laughs> just a raging lizard brain demon house. Like I'm, yeah. I, I'm being I'm being unfair to the view by like I'm, I'm I am mocking it, but I feel like it's worthy of mockery. Quite frankly, it's uh, I mean, here's the other thing, though, and I know I'm realizing I, I use a very specific word in the uh, the document that we're reading off of here. Um, mm. Sacramentalizing the brain. Yes. I can't I, I was I was just about to jump onto that because I think, yeah, De- define what sacramental thought is. Yeah. Because I do feel like, I do feel like this whole thing. And look, I I I believe the frontal lobe is a part of the brain that needs to be kept healthy. You know, like the next yeah. guy. But I do feel like it's exaggerated to the point where the frontal lobe has become has become a sacrament. That yeah. this is the thing that this is unites us mystically us. to God. Yes. And uh, you know, it's like. Your religion has to revolve around the health of your frontal lobe and or because that's the access point. And it's almost like Catholic sacrament where you have these different things that are like access points to grace. Yeah. We've done the same thing with the frontal lobe. Basically, I mean, that's you have said everything I could say about that. But oh, OK, sorry. That, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's good. It, to me, it's good that it's as intuitive to someone else. Um, as it is to me to just say like sacramentalizing the frontal lobe. I guess I could say a couple of things about that, which is that for Adventists, because th- th- we're so inconsistent in our anthropology, because mm. we do have a more materialistic view of the human person than the average Christian does. So mm-hmm. we have this tendency to then say like, oh, okay, well, where other Christians think of God as speaking to us in the soul Right. Well, we don't really we tend to not believe in an immaterial soul as like a separate entity, like the the true residence of the self or whatever. Right. So Hmm. for an Adventist who is like a strict materialist, 
where where is the residence of the 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 core of the self? Well, mm. that must be in the brain and potentially within the the segment of the brain that has the most uh, moral decision making agency or or the most involvement in in those kinds of things that we would associate with things like free will or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So. I guess for us, it's like, oh, the brain, that is the access point between um, like heaven and earth for the human person. So, yeah, we, we would treat it sacramentally. Um, I really don't think that that is a, a fair way to look at it, um, only in the sense that I've I've seen Adventists take this anthropology to some really bizarre extremes. Um, for example, I remember having a conversation with someone who shall remain nameless, who said Quite little, and this was a conversation about metaphysics. I'm like, okay, well, Jesus at very least is different than us because he did have a pre-existent soul. Like he did actually exist before being born in a human body. And that's different than all of our experiences, right? He was in fact, God, the son, and he became incarnate. Like mm -hmm. that's just orthodox, like Christian, like foundational doctrine, right? And this particular Adventist individual said like, well, I believe he was the son of God and became incarnate, but I believe that God, the son, God, the eternal son, the member of the Trinity became Jesus of Nazareth's brain. Be, like God, the son, God, who is spirit, God, mm -hmm. the eternal, not made of the same stuff as the finite universe became the brain of Jesus of Nazareth. To me, that's just like okay, we're we are stepping way, way that is a wonky way outside of anything resembling Christian orthodoxy here. I don't even yeah. know if there is a like if you threw that at the church fathers at, at Nicaea, I think they like I think Arius would be like what? <laughs> like, <laughs> like I think yeah. Sibelius, like e even the heretics would be like, uh, okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> and obviously that was an interaction with one person, but I think mm. there is this this real sense and I think it's probably understudied, probably underexamined the way that within Adventism we have had to shift the locus of personhood and spirituality to a material object, right? Because of our commitments with regards to state of the dead doctrine, uh mm. not believing in the immortality of the soul. Um I think that this is I mean and this is a controversial take that I don't think everyone has to agree with me on. I think this is one of the areas where we do actually have to very, very carefully and very rigorously and biblically rethink how we approach metaphysics because it does lead to mm. Christological absurdities. Or, mm. I mean, to, to, to the more traditionalist Adventists, they would say, no, it's not a Christological absurdity. We live in a physicalistic universe, and that includes God. I've met people mm -hmm. like that. Like yeah, God is yeah. a finite material object, which to mm. me, I'm like, okay, cool. But it sounds like your, your interpretation of state of the dead is going to turn you into an Aryan and maybe even mm -hmm. just a polytheist. I don't know, but that's, yeah. that's an, a topic unto itself. But this is the thing, right? We started this off talking about like music and worship. And when you start to interrogate some of these worldview questions, like the hyperfixation on the brain that exists within Adventist culture, you get into things that are like potentially going to undermine Christology, mm. you know, and obviously it will take minds much brighter than mine to unpack what that means, like whether or not Adventist physicalism is actually compatible with mm -hmm. like Orthodox Trinitarianism. And I know that there has been some work, some work done on that. I know that um, Dr. John Reeve 
and uh, Woodrow Wooden, I think is his name, and, and, and one other scholar. They wrote a book on the Trinity. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I've been meaning to for years, and it just always escapes me. And I know they talked about kind of the Adventists trying to unshackle Trinitarianism from patristic theology and being mm-hmm. like, can we arrive at Trinitarianism without the fathers? I mean, mm-hmm. I happen to think that the fathers arrived at Trinitarianism through scripture. But again, this is me not being as anti-Greek as some people, <laughs> even though the fathers weren't all Greek either. That needs to be said. Most of them were Africans, yeah. but that's a conversation yeah. for Thomas Odin at another time. And I'm rambling in my loose association brain right now. So I will stop. <laughs> excellent. Excellent, bro. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, and look, I totally agree. Uh, the sac- sacramentalizing, there's a, there's a big difference between saying here's an aspect of our, of our physical reality that we need to look after and going to the point where you will say, you know, if you listen to this kind of music, um, the Holy Spirit cannot speak to you. Right. You know, it's like you. So you're telling me the most powerful being in the universe. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Something about that's really, really, really odd. He and I do believe to we 50 we, cent every time. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Usher man. versus and, and God. Look, no, no contest. That's it, man. And and look, I'm, I, I do believe that Ellen White uses this language and we're going to talk about Ellen White later on. She uses this language of, of guarding the avenues of the soul. Like, I actually really appreciate that language. I think there's a beauty in in that picture, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the avenues of the soul and guarding the avenues of the soul and that there's wisdom in that. Um, and we'll unpack this a little bit more later on. It definitely is something that when you tie ideas like that to a danger epistemology, yeah, you end up with myths and exaggerations and fanaticism that just yeah, the damage to younger generations and the damage to the church's capacity to engage the world it inhabits is incalculable. That's it for today, everyone. We are out of time, but it's going to continue for quite a few episodes. So make sure you keep tuning in, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends about it, and uh, enjoy the journey along with us. In the meantime, if you haven't had a chance to do it yet, I invite you to go to the storychurchproject.com and check out the new Bible study guide, The Road, A Journey Through the Narrative of Scripture. The second edition is now available. And this is a Bible study set that's been specifically designed for communicating the narrative of redemption, the story of Scripture, to millennials, Zeds, uh, post-church, unchurched, postmodern generations. Make sure you check that out. Get your hands on a copy, and I will catch you next week. Mm-hmm.